There is a big debate over the Trump vote of whether it should be understood primarily as motivated by race and racial reaction, by nativism, a reaction on immigration, and by cultural questions on the one side, or by economics on the other. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat a four-time populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Over the last days, the Catalan independence referendum has been in the news. It doesn't easily fit in with the normal themes of a show. It's not exactly a populist movement, but I think it reminds us that populism is actually just one aspect of a really turbulent political era. I think, as I've sometimes talked about, with the rise of social media, political and economic elites have more trouble holding the system together, excluding more extreme voices. And often uh, those can be populist voices, they can be racist voices, but they can also be identity groups. And in this particular case, a subnational identity group, the Catalans, who suddenly have, find it much easier to organize against the political center. This has potential. It can lead to more justice, but can also uh, be dangerous. And I find it quite striking the way in which the situation has, has escalated over the past weeks in Spain with a central government and local Catalan independent activists really getting at loggerheads in a way which makes some forms of civic strife no longer unthinkable. So this is something to watch in Spain and, and it's more broadly something to realize about our age. But the kinds of changes we tend to talk about in this show are one subcategory of the broader possibilities that have been raised in an era of change. I'm really excited to have EJ Dion join me today. He has so many honors and affiliations, it's difficult to list them all, but he's a senior fellow at Brookings Institution. He's a longtime colonist at the Washington Post. He teaches at various places. He comments very regularly on MSNBC. But most importantly, he has this really excellent new book that he's co-written with Norman Ornstein and Thomas Mann, two very important American political scientists. And it's called One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. It's a really great range of the terrain of how we got into the moment we're in with Donald Trump and how to get out of it again. So welcome, EJ. So EJ, I feel there's sort of like two ways of reading the past election. One is about how special and you know extraordinary it is. Trump is a bizarre candidate. You know, a populist of his kind really has never been in the presidency. Arguably, perhaps similar figures have held governorships and so on, but really not the highest office in the land. You know, his views on race are in many ways far out of the mainstream, as we saw in the aftermath of Charlottesville. But then there's sort of this other way of reading this past election as a story of continuity, you know, that he won just because he was at the top of a Republican ticket. That, yes, you know, perhaps populism has never corrupted the White House, but actually it does harken back to a sort of 19th century economic populism that's been quite influential, that's been a strain of American political thought for a long time. So, you know, in your excellent book, I feel like sometimes you're torn between these two readings. And I wanted to get your sense of, you know, is this 
an extraordinary moment that could be a sort of turning point in American history? Or is this sort of actually, you know, for he maybe sort of especially bizarre as a person, not that extraordinary a moment and we're sort of going to return to normal operations soon? Well, that's a perceptive reading of the book. And what we argue is that these are not uh, mutually exclusive views, that Trump is the extreme manifestation of a trend that's been at work in Republican and conservative politics in the United States over the last 20, you could say, even 30 years. And when you push things to an extreme, as Trump has, you create a crisis that uh, uh, wasn't visible before. We view Trump as kind of the big jolt that the system probably needed to confront trends that were slowly corroding our system, but only became obvious to everyone when somebody as extreme as Trump came along. You know, a couple of things about that. One is the Republican Party and the conservative movement waged a running war on government itself, discrediting government, discrediting political leadership, with the result that in the Republican primaries, rank and file Republicans looked at the rest of the candidates and said, these are exactly the kind of establishment people that the, our Republican leaders have said that they, in principle, oppose. And so the party helped bring Trump onto itself. We quote John F. Kennedy's great line from his inaugural address, those who foolishly ride to power on the back of the tiger end up inside. And that's kind of what happened to the uh, Republican establishment. And secondly, uh, Trump is both new and, in fact, a total imitation Trump talks about America first, but in many ways, he is the importation of European far-right politics to the United States. Blood and soil has never been the way that Americans uh, identify their devotion to country. But isn't that precisely where those two interpretations start to pull apart, right? So on the one hand, you know, the Republican Party has used racist dog whistles for a long time. They've obviously tried to disenfranchise people in all kinds of ways. You know, they for a long time had a rhetoric of standing for sort of average Joe, Joe the plumber, right, while pursuing economic policies that hugely favor the rich over everybody else. So there's elements of his program that, that are a matter of continuity. But as you're saying, he is a distinctive breed of authoritarian populist, which in many ways bears more resemblance to a European conception of a right, which is that the state will solve things, that you need a strongman at the helm of it, that in many ways you need to push against procedural niceties and so on. Whereas I think often the sort of more traditional American right has been about taking power away from the state, dismantling the state, and constitutional worship as well. So those are sort of pretty different strands, aren't they? Well, again, if you push something to an extreme, you get something different. And you also have, which I want to get to in a second, the personality and approach of Trump himself, which is a very unrestrained person who time after time has shown genuinely autocratic tendencies. But just to show that this is a kind of development in the Republican Party. Back in 1980, there's some great footage online of George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, and Ronald Reagan talking about immigration and in a debate uh, during the Republican Party. Yeah, it's a great clip. It is a great clip. And they are both kind of competing to be the most pro-immigrant. You know, fast forward to the Obama era, the Republican Party in Congress, for its own political reasons, 
chose to um, kill immigration reform. They killed it under George W. Bush, even though President, the second President Bush supported it, and then they opposed it again. So I think you're seeing Trump take that development in the Republican Party and then push it in an even nastier and more focused direction. But there's no question we wouldn't have written this book if we didn't see Trump as a unique sort of threat. Once you push this to that extreme and you get someone like Trump, you have a president who is taking some of the classic steps of an autocrat trying to destroy a democratic system. He attacks judges. He does it over and over again. He attacks the media. He demonizes all opposition, whether inside his own party, remember a little Marco and Lion Ted, or in the opposition. Uh, we've seen in recent days, we could talk about this later, suddenly he's approaching that opposition and we have Chuck and Nancy instead of uh, the dreaded Schumer and Pelosi in Trump's rhetoric. But <laughs> up to this point, he looks like the classic authoritarian who's trying to chip away at the underpinnings of, uh, of liberal democracy. It doesn't mean he'll succeed in going all the way there. We argue in the book uh, that we don't want to be alarmist, but we do want to call for vigilance because there are tendencies in Trump that we see as genuinely dangerous. So I think it's worth really trying to grapple what phenomenon of Trump is. And obviously it morphs all of the time, as you were saying, sort of in the era of Chuck and Nancy, it's tempting to think it's a little different. I'm not sure how much of it has changed. I mean, populists have always sort of scrambled their logical categories when it was useful to them. But the one constant is, you know, the demand for loyalty to them and casting anybody who's not loyal to them as a traitor. So, you know, when you have successful cooperation of somebody for a little while, then suddenly they're sort of the good guys. But the moment they stand in the way of your interest, you can cast them as traitors again. And I'm sure that, you know, by the time that this airs, there's a good chance that Chuck and Nancy have reversed to, you know, crooked Pelosi and whatever his uh, moniker for Schumer is. But I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time on what the phenomenon is. And, and one of the things that I was intrigued by is sort of what we mean by populism. Now, when I think about populism, I sort of roll a whole bunch of things in together because I think that they do go together, that you can only understand populism precisely as the claim that strongman leaders like Donald Trump have of being the exclusive representatives of a people, casting everybody who disagrees with them as traitors and standing for the real people, right? Not just for, for anybody, but for the people who are, you know, not outsiders, not minorities and so on. In the book, for you distinguish between populism on the one side and sort of nationalism and nativism on the other. And that sort of actually leads us to understand populism really as a more economic force, really sort of going back to the 19th century. Now, Part of that is sort of verbal, right? I mean, part of it is depending on, you know, if you want to call Trump a populist or you want to refer to a particular historical tradition. But how connected are these two things? Can you separate out some of Trump's rhetoric and even some of his economic appeals from the deep way in which he does have authoritarian instincts and he uses nationalism and nativism as a vehicle to draw those friend-enemy distinctions and say anybody who's in the outgroup is a suspect and anybody who disagrees with me is a traitor? One of my favorite set of pages in our book, if one is permitted to have a favorite set of pages in a book, is our discussion of populism, because the term itself is, in a sense, essentially contested. It's a vexed term. It is heard differently in Europe than it is in the United States. And there's been a great debate in the United States over many years about what populism is. Is it really authoritarian or is it more democratic? There is one definition of populism in the 
very good book by um, Jan Werler Muller, where he really sees populism as essentially anti-democratic because he sees the idea rooted in the definition of the people in an exclusionary way. There is a single homogeneous, authentic people defined by a leader in some cases or a movement. And everybody who doesn't fall into that group, whether ethnic minorities or uh, um, political opponents, is some sort of enemy of the people, a term Trump used, by the way, about the press. There's another view of populism much more rooted in the American experience, and this is reflected, for example, in John Judas's also excellent book about populism, which is it's more a safety valve. It's a sign of elites becoming out of touch uh, with people, and it's a way in which the people express their dissatisfaction with an unsatisfactory status quo. So which do you um, think it is? I guess my definition, and I suppose this is a kind of dodge, is that it's circumstantial. I am kind of shaped by the American view of populism, and I can't give up on the idea that when you look at our original populists, we invented the term in the United States. They were on the whole... So, so I think there's sort of a semantic debate there and a substantive debate there, right? And the semantic debate is just like which of these entities in the world do we call populism? And I have nothing riding on that. By the way, I think 90% of semantic debates are, are just about that, right? Like which thing gets to claim the word and not a real question about what the nature of it is. But I have a fear here that there's an equivocation, that because we use this term populism semi-imported from Europe and then we go back to the American tradition, we understand Trump through a set of experiences which he has nothing to do. I don't think Trump is that similar to the 19th century American populist, but he is very similar to European authoritarian populists. Perhaps we shouldn't call that populist. Perhaps we should just call that authoritarians. I don't care about sort of the label, but I just fear that if we go back to the American tradition of populism and then somehow impose that on Trump, it's a poor guide to who he is. The reason I think the Semitic debate is of interest is because it shapes your response to what you think is a genuine threat. And so I do think it's important to draw distinctions between more democratic forms of populism and more authoritarian forms of populism. The American side of me rebels a bit against a total rejection of populism because I think that elites in the West do need to acknowledge that these movements that have risen up, obviously all across Europe as well as the United States, the America First president is importing a European ideology, which I like to keep underscoring, that if elites just kind of write this off, they risk failing to deal with the underlying problems that have given rise uh, to this protest movement. And so that's why I think it's important not to reject populism altogether, but to make distinctions between types of populism. On the broader point, I think we're in broad agreement on this, that First, Trump is, whether he's a populist or not, depending on the definition, he is clearly a phony friend of the working class when you look at the actual policies he is pursuing, whether it's getting rid of Obamacare, which disproportionately helps his own constituency or a large part of it, or his tax cut program or his deregulatory program, and that he uses nationalism um, and opposition to immigration to try to rally these voters, but there's something fundamentally phony about this. But for friends of liberal democracy, I think they should understand this the way John Judas does in his book, which is something has gone haywire with the economy, something has gone haywire 
in the lived experience of a lot of people in the peripheral parts of the developed countries. It's striking that the Le Pen vote in old industrial regions of France was akin to the Trump vote in some of the older industrial regions of the United States. And one of the reasons our book spends so much time on solutions on looking forward is we think it's very important to fight this, let's call it authoritarian form of populism right now. But we also think that there's never going to be a a real victory against that until we start dealing with some of the underlying problems. So I agree definitely that there is a democratic energy against, in some ways, a system that excludes the people. I mean, in the book that I have coming out, The People Versus Democracy, I essentially argue that liberal democracy a long time ago has split into these two sort of new regime forms and that the thing that populism is reacting against is a form of undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy in which, you know, there's rule of law and people are treated reasonably well, but the political system has really insulated itself from the popular view. And that that is a real failing that's led to this. So so I understand your concern about not losing that out of the picture. But then I think there's always a danger if we sort of grant the most positive notion of populism and then call Trump a populist, it sort of gives him too much credit, right? So I think there's a sort of tension. Oh, I agree. I I am very much with that. I think that is what we argue when we call him a phony friend of the working class. And the notion of a rich developer who's never before shown any real concern for the folks he's now appealing to could make everyone, including his own supporters, suspicious. I mean, what's interesting, I guess, is actually that there have been phony friends of a working class before, but a lot of them have at least gone some way towards sort of earning the bona fides, right? So when you go back to the origin of a word, populist, populares in the ancient Roman Republic, they were, you know, very, very elite families that decided partially perhaps out of conviction, partially certainly out of political calculation to make themselves the spokesman of ordinary, poorer Roman people. But they did actually try to push towards land reform and so on, right? So there is actually some history of very rich people coming in and and trying to deliver to some degree for a voter base. And what's sort of striking about Trump is the extent to which he doesn't even try to do that. But you were starting a little bit to talk about some of the roots, and, and you were doing that in the way that we often do on the show, which is comparatively, right? I mean, I think any explanation for why Trump could succeed has to be sort of situated in a larger explanation of why pretty similar populist figures like Marine Le Pen and Orban and Kaczynski and Hungary and Poland and so on have been able to succeed because you need to look beyond the American context to see why all of those movements are rising at the same time. There's got to be some common causes. It's not a coincidence that this is happening. So what what is your sort of account on what led to Trumpism? And, and what is the, you have a very intricate way in the book of describing how it is that economics and culture actually interplay and intersect as causes for his rise rather than being mutually exclusive. The first thing we try to underscore right at the beginning is before Americans uh, sort of start thinking of ourselves as Trump's country, we have to remember that we have also created what we call a non-majoritarian democracy. It is not just sour grapes for people to point out that Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by 2.9 million, and actually a whole lot of other votes were cast against him on a third-party line. And we go through an analysis of American institutions, whether you're looking at the Senate, the House, influenced by gerrymandering or the distorting role of big money, that we have an increasingly non-majoritarian democracy, so that I think there are a series of political reforms that are 
required here. But you're right. There is a big debate over uh, the Trump vote of whether it should be understood primarily as motivated by race and racial reaction, by nativism, a reaction on immigration and by cultural questions on the one side or by economics on the other. Our conclusion from looking at the data is that if you look at almost all of the studies based on surveys, on opinion surveys, there's very strong evidence that this was primarily, first, a vote for a Republican candidate. Republicans voted for a Republican. And second, that race and culture and immigration were more important on the whole to these voters than economics. But then when you look at all of the studies rooted in geography, and you look at the geography of the Trump vote, it is clear that he did best in places where there was legitimate reason uh, for economic anxiety, whether you're looking at places with high levels of foreclosure or places where uh, the job base is most threatened by either globalization or technological change. And so our conclusion is that there can be two forms of denial here. The denial one would be to say this is all about economics and not about race. No, there was a very strong uh, racial backlash component to the Trump vote. But you cannot ignore uh, the economic context of that backlash. And uh, a guy from Silicon Valley went around and did interviews with Trump voters. He was just curious, why? what are they thinking? And we quoted a couple of them at the end, um, and one of them said to him, I'd love to see one-tenth of the outrage about the state of our lives out here that you have for Muslims from another country. And then he says, you have no idea what our lives are like. And I think that quotation and a similar one we quote show that you can't fully disentangle economic resentment and anger from a backlash, whether to Muslims or to African-Americans or to um, immigrants. If you ask me to look at all the studies I have seen about Europe and the United States, I would say, particularly in Europe, that the immigration issue is in the fore and the economy is the context. But again, I think if you ignore the economic context, you A, ignore the best handle you have on solving some of these problems, and B, you're ignoring some real suffering out there. So I agree completely with you on economics versus culture, and I describe it very similarly in my book. You know, often I think it's also economic anxiety that makes people double down on their identity, that when you don't feel like your economic achievements give you pride, your job gives you a sense of belonging, you become more likely to double down on the identity piece of it. You're no longer the foreman of the factory, you're no longer um, you know, somebody who's risen into the middle class. You're a white guy and you know why are those people over there doing better than me, right? So the interplay there is complicated and you're absolutely right to point to the geographic factor in this. It's not necessarily people who are poor who voted for Donald Trump, but it is often people in regions where they have good reason to be less optimistic about the future. Right. No, that distinction is very important, by the way, because he didn't necessarily win the votes of poor people. He won the votes of economically anxious people in the old working class and the lower middle class rather than the very poor or the unemployed. And it's sort of those folks who are at the heart of his surge. Again, I just want to underscore there are plenty of Trump voters who are old-fashioned, upper-middle and upper-class Republicans who are voting for tax cuts. It's the part of the Trump constituency that we just don't look at. Similarly, in Brexit, where we focus on the Brexit vote in labor areas of the North, but don't look at the vote of kind of shire Tories 
in southern England. This was a similarly peculiar coalition that was brought together here. So this is exactly where I want to push back a little bit, because... I agree that you can tell this as a story of continuity. I mean, one of the striking things about the 2016 election is that something like 97% of congressmen were re-elected, right? This is not a wave election. So it's easy to say, well, look, I mean, in the end, people who have defined as Republican for a long time voted for Donald Trump, and they would have voted for, you know, Mitt Romney if he had Mark been Rubio or anyone else, right? yeah. yeah. But it seems to me, and this is a slightly paradoxical argument, that there's a change in the continuity, right? That when you go back to past moments in which major parties nominated candidates that were perceived to be extreme, uh, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you know, on the Democratic side, you know, something like McGovern, but on the Republican side, something like Barry Goldwater in 1964, who's far less radical than Trump in, in many ways, they lost disastrously because voters were saying, well, no, I actually have a commitment to basic democratic norms and principles and have a commitment to a sort of somewhat more centrist vision of what our policy should be. And that guy is just too extreme. So I'm going to cross the aisle. I'm going to go vote for the other party. So it is true that a lot of people who voted Republican for a long time voted for Donald Trump. And one way of reading that is as a story of continuity. But there's another way of reading the same thing, which is, well, we're now at a point where anybody will get close to 50% of the election as long as they have the label of a major party, or as long as through negative partisanship, they can mobilize hate against the other party. And there's something genuinely new about that. 12 or 16 years ago, it seems to me, a lot of the Republicans who normally vote Republican would, been said, would have said, no, I'm not going to vote for that guy. Well, I think the contrast is with Barry Goldwater in 1964, where a lot of Republicans did bolt the party and voted to reelect Lyndon Johnson exactly. because they saw Barry Goldwater as a great threat. And what can we learn from that? Well, what happened after 1964 is over time, a lot of those kinds of Republicans, more moderate and even liberal Republicans, simply left the Republican Party or were pushed out so that the Republican Party itself, in its membership, in the, in the people loyal to it, is a far more conservative party than it used to be. Second, um, we haven't mentioned Hillary Clinton in our conversation. And fairly or unfairly, I would argue unfairly, but nonetheless, there it was an enormous hostility to Hillary Clinton that comprised of all sorts of things, including sexism, including a kind of mistrust because of events, you know, events like the server, and also a sense that she represented the past. There's this whole set of aspects of her that made her unappealing to a significant part of the electorate. And in the end, the decisive vote for Trump was an anti-Clinton vote. Uh, we note in the book that if you took people who had an unfavorable view of both Trump and Clinton on, on election day, this group voted for Trump by 17 points. So in the end, it was this vote saying, the heck with both these people, but I'll vote for this guy because I just don't want her or I, don't, I want some sort of change. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't tend to duck your question, but I, I think that there are so many factors, including the workings of the electoral system that went into Trump, that on the one hand, we need to see this as a hugely important phenomenon because he is president of the United States. And yet we can overread the extent to which this is Trump's country. What really mattered is he got about two million more votes than Mitt Romney, which is a lot of people, but a very small share of the electorate. And we've got to figure out what made those folks swing that way if we're going to 
sort of reverse this kind of politics. Well, one question is whether or not the Republican Party is going to turn into his party. It may be that, you know, the next presidential candidate from the GOP ends up being like Mitt Romney again and that sort of things calm down. But my fear is that the party will slowly morph into a party that not he personally necessarily controls, but that plays on these themes so much more strongly than in the past. One of the admirable things about your book, EJ, is that you really spend a lot of time on the solutions. You don't just sort of lay out your analysis and the problems. You make some pretty substantive suggestions uh, with your co-authors about what we can do. And so I want to make sure that we cover that in the conversation. One of the things you talk about is a form of inclusive patriotism. And again, this is something where, where, where our thinking overlaps. It's, it's something that I've been writing about in my book as well. And it's sort of partially inspired by a conversation we had in Chicago in the spring when we were on a panel together. So your idea, roughly speaking, is that we need to actually re-emphasize a form of patriotism that unites us beyond racial and ethnic lines and draws on a long civic tradition in order to counter the, the far-right interpretation of what it is to be an American, in order to counter ethno-nationalist ideas of what it is to be an American. And as I'm saying, I'm sympathetic with that. I broadly agree. But reading those pages, sort of the worries that I always have in the back of my mind when I make similar points sort of came back to me. And I want to get a reaction to them. I mean, how do we make sure that this inclusive patriotism doesn't actually just give in or wind up reinforcing a much stronger sense of ethnic nationalism? Are these really as distinct as the two different terms sort of imply? Or do we run the danger that in good times it's going to be inclusive patriotism and we go around waving the flag, but actually what we do is to encourage people to bind this ideology so deeply that in bad times it can easily flip into a more exclusionary form of nationalism? Well, first, I, I have, as you know, I have a debt to you in that chapter, because when we were at that meeting in Chicago, you had just become an American citizen. And you gave one of the loveliest talks about what this meant in a very brief way. And you argued correctly, I think, that you could be an American in a way you couldn't be a citizen of any other country, precisely because we were not a country rooted in nationality. It didn't matter where you came from. We're a country rooted in a set of ideas, and that when you swear to be an American, you swear to uphold the Constitution. We are the country of we the people, the first words of the Constitution, and all men are created equal from the Declaration of Independence. And so I think that in the United States especially, patriotism presents itself differently than it might in a country that is purely about race and nationality. And we Americans should be proud to embrace that. And most of the time, we are. So that's point one. Point two is I do think that liberals and people on the left are uneasy with patriotism precisely because they always worry that it will fall into a kind of chauvinism. And, you know, what we try to do is make a couple of distinctions that, you know, we could argue about this back and forth forever, but that Orwell made this distinction as well. But patriotism is rooted in love of a place, love of a country, love of its people, that does not necessarily mean excluding anyone. It does not mean hating other countries. It is not necessarily an assertion of a country's right to dominate others. It's not that. It is simply love of country. And nationalism is something quite dangerous or potentially quite dangerous, as we saw throughout the uh, 20th century. And so I think these two do sort of present against each other And I think there's one other thing that comes more difficult to liberals and the left. And I, as I say, I identify with that position. And that is 
that the nation state itself is where the writ of democracy has won. Europe has tried to create democratic institutions that are transnational. I salute that effort. I would have voted against Brexit. But all the troubles that the EU has should tell us that democracies runs within nation states. So when voters are inclined to defend the nation state, we should sort of accept that within that defense of the nation state is some intuition that we have yet to find ways of making democracy work outside that context. And that, that's why I think one of the most brilliant, if uh, manipulative slogans ever, was the Brexit slogan, let's take back control. That yep, spoke yep. to this feeling that people have. And we've got to grapple with both the fact that people do love the patch they're from and that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I love my family in a way I can love no one else. And yet that does not exclude me from loving other people, welcoming other people, embracing other people. And that if you're a Democrat, you do have to think hard about what the nation state actually does and not simply uh, the nation state as some as some sort of destructive entity. So there's a sort of adjacent debate here, which is around the role of subnational identity, right? So, I mean, obviously there's a debate between ethnically exclusionary nationalists and inclusive patriots of a kind that you describe, right? So some people who say, well, uh, certainly in Europe where I'm from, you know, if you're black, if you're Muslim, if you're Asian, you can't really be German or Italian or French versus people say, no, that's not true. It's about citizenship. It's about common ideals. And you can build a sense of a nation, one that has a much longer history and tradition in the United States, where it doesn't matter what ethnicity and religion you have. But then there's another debate, which is sort of what role should people's identity and distinctions between ethnic distinction and religious distinction play to structure our rights and privileges. And part of that debate is tactical. Part of that debate is sort of how much emphasis should we put on a common narrative for all Americans versus a promise to defend minorities against attack in the election. So as people who think that Hillary Clinton should have gone further in talking about defending the rights of various groups. There's people who blame Hillary Clinton's defeat on the fact that she sort of called out all of those groups, LGBTQ, um, Latinos, African-Americans, and so on, with policies that were targeted to them rather than focusing on this overall narrative. But I sort of want to go a little bit away from that tactical debate, because I think the tactical debate often risks us losing out of sight the more long-term normative debate about, well, what kind of society do we want? What role should these different groups play in an actually just society? What are we trying to build towards here? And, and I'd love to get your sense of that. In a, in a nation that sort of with a regulative ideal is inclusive patriotism, what role does people's individual religion and identity and ethnicity play in, the, in public life? One of the official American models is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I think that what we have to understand out of that is the dialectic, if I could use such a highfalutin term, the dialectic between the many and the one is very complicated. Historically, in the United States, we have celebrated the identity of individual groups. People are proud to be Polish. They're proud to be Italian. They're proud to be African-American. And they have celebrated their particularity. And that hasn't gone away. It's changed over time with new ethnic groups, uh, Latinos now celebrating that particularity the way Italians would 100 years ago, say. 
And we celebrate that. But there is the one, there is something that glues all of this together. There is a kind of solidarity. And I think if you look at our history, we have been better at this at some moments than others. This is not the first time we have seen nativism arise in the United States. We passed a very restrictive immigration law uh, in the 1920s, for example, when the Ku Klux Klan was on the rise. So we have struggled with this before. But the times when we're at our best, and I think of, say, the New Deal period and the World War II period as a period when the word we was very important to Americans, was a period in which we found a way to balance these. Uh, We quote Franklin Roosevelt's speech to the daughters of the American Revolution, where he was trying to link our diversity to a sense of solidarity. That's a tricky proposition, but that is uh, what we are struggling for. And at our best moments, uh, we have managed to do that. But we've got to acknowledge that there will always be a tension between these two. And uh, lastly, I think it presents itself in a more complicated way in Europe than it does here. And it's it's hard enough here because of a different sense of what nationality means. So you have lots of good suggestions, but one that I also want to be sure to cover is about the economy. And you're saying basically we need sort of two things. We need a GI Bill for American workers, which is a nice turn of phrase. And we, and we also need to transform the role of a corporation. I mean, what would that look like? And, and how does that help us to respond to what you would argue is the most positive element of this populist energy, namely the sort of outrage at the way in which the economic system has really failed average workers in America? On the GI Bill side, we have a list of things we think government can do to expand opportunity, and it includes some of the standard things like job training and better access, not simply to college, but also to post-high school training. I think we can learn something from the Europeans, particularly the Germans, in the respect shown to work other than the work done by people who happen to go to university. And so we have that sort of list of things. We also talk about what I think is a heartening development. We've got a kind of debate going on between supporters of a universal basic income who are saying, looking forward, technological change could displace an awful lot of people. And how do we support those folks? And how do they have a chance to thrive, even if the job market is going to get even more difficult? That's on the one side. On the other side are those who favor universal access to jobs, which would include the government as the creator of jobs as a last resort, but also fostering the creation of jobs. Personally, the three of us lean toward jobs rather than simply income, but using parts of the UBI idea to support that work. I think people want to work. They want to contribute to society. They want to be part of it. That policy debate is going to be complicated, but the intuition that you need to do something big in this period and not just the sort of smaller incremental things, I think that intuition is correct. And that's one of the places where I think tactics and principles come together. Often people think of those two things as, you know, cutting apart. But I genuinely think that both in order to win against extremists, more uh, sort of moderate candidates need to actually show how they really would change up the status quo and really improve things for people in a pretty new and radical way. And it's the right thing to do. So there's sort of two things that come together here. Yeah, you were telling me about the corporation side. On the corporation, why is there this reaction against corporations in the United States? 
Steve Perlstein, a great journalist and academic, has argued, and I think correctly, that corporations used to have a much broader sense of responsibility. Their responsibility was not simply to shareholders. And over the last 30 years, we moved toward the idea that only shareholders matter. And we suggest a number of changes proposed by Steve Perlstein and others uh, that could reorient uh, corporations back to their sense that they have, obviously have a responsibility to their shareholders, but they also have a responsibility to their workers, their communities, and their country. And we could promote a, if you will, a more responsible kind of corporate behavior, perhaps a more loyalty within corporations to their employees. And we really think that even those who are the strongest advocates of capitalism I have to recognize that there has been a change in the nature of the corporation within the capitalist system that is creating a large backlash and I think must be dealt with in the long run if people want to save the market system. Yeah, and I think that's both so what we should be aiming to do and an interesting take on um, going beyond you know, redistribution, beyond job training programs, beyond the things we normally talk about and actually think about how do we structurally change some of the functioning of a capitalist system? How do we actually change what corporations are and aim to do? And I'm always struck by the deep way in which sort of a fiduciary duty to just maximize shareholder value has really misshaped what American companies are like, even compared to some other companies in the world. Listen, you know, it's far too rare that we end these conversations on a positive note. And one of the sort of themes that runs through the book is that Trumpism doesn't own the future. And Calling me a little skeptical on that, my fear is that authoritarian populists will own the future in various ways. But what can we do, EJ, to make sure that Trumpism doesn't own the future? One of the reasons we are guardedly hopeful uh, in this book, and it is ultimately a hopeful book, is that first, you have seen an enormous response to Trump, an enormous reaction where lots of people who stayed out of politics are joining in politics. Lots of people who disdain running for office are actually starting to run for office at local levels. A whole series of organizations that try to recruit candidates who suddenly have more people wanting to engage than before. I think that people understand now in a way they didn't before that if you just disdain lesser evil politics, you can end up with the greater evil and that politics is about making choices, even when you're not 100% satisfied with the choices before you. And you've seen an enormous outpouring from civil society on issues ranging from immigration to healthcare to refugees, even down a very long list. So Trump has activated the country in a way I think no other politician has. I think that is a promising sign. And the other is that Trump has shaken a lot of people out of complacency. And if we can make anything good about out of Trumpism, it's that people are now paying attention to the cost of these vast gulfs we have in our societies, particularly between richer uh, metro areas and uh, less affluent interiors. But we need to find a way to make this politics not a politics of race. If I can close on this, setting one group's pain against another group's pain is a recipe for division and inaction. This is how Trump wants to organize politics. The task of people who want to defend liberal democracy and think of themselves as progressive is to bring together those in the inner cities among immigrants and recent immigrants and among the white working class to say, we actually 
share far more in common in terms of our grievances. Let's find a way to solve them. Is that hopeful and in some ways idealistic? I suppose so. But we've had a politics like that in the past, from Roosevelt to Robert Kennedy and other moments. And that's the kind of politics we need again. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Ijay, so much for being on the show. Uh, what a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Buy a Chinese restaurant and bake The Good Fight into all of the fortune cookies you give out to your customers at the end of the meal. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.